So usually how I like to start these conversations is really about an individual's journey. I'm fortunate enough when I get to talk to people, you know, they're really at the the, the prime of, of sort of their, their their career and sort of their life. They're doing something uh, pretty, pretty big and it's going to sort of impact a lot of lives. It's going to take a lot of time and energy within their life, within their life. So give us an idea of, of maybe your career before you got to Unreasonable and what was the roadmap for you and your sort of maturation within impact investing? Sure. Um, firstly, thank you, Grant, for having me uh, on your podcast. I'm a big fan. So I am originally from India, where I grew up in a family that really focused on utilizing all of our resources towards educating me and my sister, so much so that in order for me to have the opportunity of having a good education beyond high school, my parents left what could be best considered a really comfortable life in Mumbai mm-hmm. to start all over again in the U.S. so that both of their daughters could be exposed to the U.S. education system. And it was actually my father who played a pretty active role in helping me think through my career path and suggested that I pursue investment banking, which was quite mm-hmm. an aberration from the standard career paths you would think of in the, in the 90s. Uh, sure. He would me prep for interviews, drive me to the to the banking uh, to the banks, and 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 prep, you know and, and share me as I went into the um, heady world of finance. Quite frankly, both of them have been my anchors as I navigated that particular industry. So I've been in the capital raising business for over 15 years, kicking off my career in, on the advisory front, moving into the strategic finance world, and in my last role when I first joined Barclays to work on a sustainability initiatives grant, it was actually the, for the very first time I was exposed to the world of ventures that were doing well and doing good, and I was stoked. I mean, thinking about how yeah. finance could play a catalytic catalytic role in these kind of sustainable technologies, if you will, was uh, was a giddying experience. And before you know it, I connected with Daniel Epstein, founder of Unreasonable Group. Anyone who chats with Daniel can attest to this, that you yep. quickly begin to drink <laughs> the unreasonable Kool-Aid. Yes. <laughs> so I jumped ship from a very stable institution to a high growth company in at the end of 2019. And in 2020 uh, onwards, my mandate here has been to oversee our capital introductions desk, where we build relations with partners across the ecosystem, VCs, family offices, and foundations, mm-hmm. um, and connect them to our venture base. And, and join 2020, quite frankly, was where I noticed that there was a missing segment. While we focused on, you know, the, the, the institutional investor community, there was a missing segment of the individual investors that could mm-hmm. play a remarkable, uh, that can not only deploy capital, but intrinsically drive value to our venture base. So we started Collective in 2020, which essentially a private members club for Mm -hmm. sophisticated accredited investors who are interested in pooling capital to deploy into sustainable technologies that are changing the world. Uh, And that and and the underpinning of that particular community for us is the idea that it is more than 50% of it has to be a diverse women, people of color, members from the disadvantaged communities, because I truly believe that means you know, we are bringing together smart capital uh, to move the needle. So that's that's my role right now. I, I am very excited on, I think we're finally seeing the ideology, I guess, of venture coming into a space in the sector where I don't think that that sort of uh, skill set or philosophy has been enacted quite yet. You know, usually the venture capital world and that philosophy is is very uh, predicated towards like building, you know, CRM apps, right, or social media mm. apps, right. Sort of the the these 
companies that are, are, are great, right? They, they've obviously changed the world, right, in a lot of different ways. But while that has happened, right, while the Snapchats have been created and, and sort of the Zooms have been created, the Facebooks and Instagrams and all these these other things in Salesforce, we still have like mass poverty, right? We still have yeah. education issues. You know, we still have, you know, water crisis issues, even in the United States, but obviously in emerging markets around the world, we still have these foundational problems, right? And it's like, how can venture take that same philosophy that can create, you know, a trillion dollar company? You know, mm -hmm. well, how can we take that and solve, you know, whether it's public education, whether it's alleviate poverty or sustainable agriculture, these things that can give people chances that, that sort of normally just haven't sort of had access to it, right? And I just want to get your thoughts on, you've seen sort of venture go from, <laughs> you know, over the decades, how has it matured? And now are you as optimistic to see venture go into the impact space? And do you think it will, it will be, it will have the same success, success in solving these problems as it did in sort of solving, you know, modern technology problems and giving us, you know, cloud computing and AI and all these other things? More than optimistic. I mean, I'm of the firm belief that the next unicorns will be seeing mm. will be high growth, high impact companies that are utilizing breakthrough technologies uh, to solve environmental and societal problems in a profitable and scalable way. To me, when we think about what's the underpinning of a successful venture or a successful product in the market, it is a combination of team traction and the market opportunity, you know, and, and in the past, yes, in the early 2000s, uh, the VC world was pretty excited about um, the clean tech movement. Uh, we had quite a few VC funds rise mm -hmm. up very yeah. quickly to, to deploy capital, but get burned because of the unit economics, um, sure. not being particularly in their favor. And most importantly, because of this massive floor, if you will, on, on subsidies, uh, which really created a false notion of, of you know, scalability. Now, fast forward, that isn't the case. It is far more cheaper to be harnessing renewable energy. Mm -hmm. and, and there are more technologies uh, that are coming into the market that will allow us to, to really look at the way we think about scalability and doing good in, in a true returns fashion, right? And, I, and, and second is the notion of the word impact investing. I think, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, over the last decade or so, you know, even even in the past, I mean, we've always shared this idea, common idea and a common philosophy that you can do good through your philanthropic efforts, and you can do well in your business. That is now slowly being, you know, while, while patient capital and philanthropy has its role, mm -hmm. it's not enough. Yeah. The problems that we are facing in the world are so are humongous in its size. Hunger, uh, looking at greenhouse gas emission, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, looking at how can we reduce, you know, upskill our workforce and, and reduce poverty or unemployability. Mm -hmm. uh, these are massive problems. And grants, public policies, public support, governmental support can only have, can only impact so much. Yep. It's important for private players to start stepping in. And with the and because of the emergence of big data, you know, AI, machine learning, and, and such robotics, automation, we are seeing the possibility of returns, profitability, and impact 
going in hand in hand. So I'm I'm incredibly bullish um, <laughs> and 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 uh, get excited because that's the kind of companies we're seeing in our network uh, that that are that are successfully achieving this. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that too because we talk about these incredible sort of technologies. Do you, can you maybe throw a few examples out uh, of maybe some uh, some companies that you know Unreasonable has invested in that you're super optimistic about it and sort of proud of and just give an idea of like what kind of companies are out there being created to solve some of these problems yeah no uh, and i can go on on that so i'll start off with one company whose ceo i'm a big fan of um it's lancer tech uh, this is a company that's gone on to raise significant amounts of money they look at a you know converting carbon emissions coming out from factories, you know, steel, uh, uh, you know, oil and gases and all of it, and look at converting the carbon emissions, recycling that into um, their first use case is in ethanol, jet-friendly ethanol, Hmm. where Virgin Atlantic was able to fly, you know, using that recycled fuel, a component of that fuel, and, and it makes for a commercial use case. Another one that we at Collective invested in is a company called Air Protein. If you ever have a chance to read up about Dr. Lisa Dyson, who's the founder of that particular company, much like the Indian in me gets about my career path not being good enough, you know, like she's a rock star. Uh, she is a um, she has done her PhD from MIT and has leveraged NASA's technology to be able to convert elements of air into protein using uh, using this microbial fermentation methods. And what I'm just stunned by the use case is, is around the very fact that the slaughter industry is one of our biggest contributors to greenhouse mm-hmm. gas emissions. Mm-hmm. And there are just remarkable set of technologies that are coming into market to, to offset that. Uh, and air protein is one of them. And I can go on, but these are the two companies that I feel are just killing it in the market. Both of them female founders. The one in Atlanta Tech is run by Dr. Jennifer Holmgren, uh, who I said I'm a big fan of. And, and the second one who I deeply admire and also I'm equally, if not more inspired, is Dr. Lisa Dyson. Yeah, no, two incredible ones for sure. I, I want to talk a little bit about consumerism because <laughs> mm-hmm. I have sort of reflected and been in that space for, for a while now, and I certainly believe in, in the power of the consumer dollar to really, really make a significant change in, in how, you know, companies are structured, how they deal with sustainability, all these different things that are offset when, you know, you buy something from a company, right? That, that's, I mean, that says a lot, right? We, we, we as consumers have such power by spending our money with these companies and, and spending that with companies that have really, really significant values set on, whether it's the environment, whether it's slow fashion instead of fast fashion. Are there any companies that that you w- would mention and say are doing significant work in where it's the buyer can can do, right? Because Air Protein and these other, th- other companies are much more B2B, it sounds like, or enterprise where, but is there anything on the consumer level at the moment or coming down the pipe that... Yeah, no, I, in fact, I, I want to correct slightly on that. Air protein is 
looking at producing chicken patties gotcha. uh, down to the restaurant level. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, yeah. So um, they've been trialing it out with some of the restaurants in California uh, and, and uh, you know, have had uh, success with it. So it is something a consumer can look, yes. taste and, 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 and touch. Um, but you're, you are right about a grant. I think consumers are now becoming, you know, are increasingly uh, building their voice around, you know, and, and actually voicing out where their money goes and, mm-hmm. and how their money matters. So the kind of companies that we are seeing in the market that directly impact uh, consumers are companies like, you know, uh, let's, let's say one company that we've just recently invested in called Classcraft. Uh, this is an education technology company. It directly impacts a student, student's life, if, if I go back to my student days in, in a school, is not particularly, you know, it's filled with uh, confusion and stress or concerns about, you know, how, how your peers will be treating you and, and how, you know, you'll be engaged within your own peer groups in, in, a, in a school, which can lead to bullying or, or feeling isolated. Mm-hmm. This particular company looks at building a it has built a gamified platform, which allows students and, and children to engage in a gamified way to build positive interactions and positive behaviors amongst each other. So parents are excited about this because it reduced, it has clinically been shown that it has reduced bullying. It has shown there's more engagement from students to learn, uh, learn better. And the teachers are finding that through this gamified ways and through a reward system that they are finding a more engaged class, which leads to better outcomes in a prolonged way. Those pieces are where we notice how consumer voices are really dictating the pain points that they're seeing and how technology is now responding to the kind of companies uh, that are being in the, that are being, that are coming to the uh, forefront. I want to chat a little bit about emerging markets and Obviously, India, you probably have a little bit more insight on, uh, but also Africa as well. These are two sort of mass markets of untapped potential, I feel like. And, I start, and I'm starting to see like really incredible things start to come out of those, those regions. Do you see the same thing? And, and what is your, your sort of thoughts on emerging markets where there's you know, billions of people now are having access to you know, high-speed internet and now the capability to start businesses much more rapidly than before. What, what are your thoughts on just sort of maybe India and Africa specifically? To me, I consider emerging markets, obviously, as the impact hotbeds. You know, in India, if uh, when we think about several sectors and, and several industries, they are ripe for disruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, both yep. on the socioeconomic front, on the pain points that uh, have, you know, have have emerged uh, all the way from remote, you know, workforce upskilling to any renewable energy use cases and seeing how, you know, several sectors are able to interplay with each other to reach sustainable ways of scaling and moving forward. Some of the companies we've been seeing in the, in the country that have emerged to really tackle uh, issues or, or causes are Companies like, you know, Jumbo Tail uh, that's come out of our, one of our recent cohorts. This is a company that looks at being the uh, digitizing the shops that you see on, on the streets. Mm. The, you know, the fam, you know I, I'm not sure if you've ever traveled to, to India, but on every street corner, you will see quite a few rows of shops of just dilapidated conditions, yep. you know, yep. where 
you know, it's a quick walk over to pick up something and, and right. to buy your, your toothbrush and your last minute toothpaste supplies. These guys found that, I mean, and if you human, humanize that demographic, it's your, right. you know, lower middle class income, family run business that's just trying to, you know, paycheck to paycheck uh, with employees uh, that are trying to make ends meet. And, and not something that is, you know, that, that, you know, and, and they have multitude of issues. They have all the way from inventory management to com- competition between the other stores. And, and of course, any, any, anything in, in the policy perspective or anything, they hit first. Um, so Jumbo Tail used that as a, as a, you know, saw that as that pain point and really started to look at how they could help these stores flourish. So they built out, they digitized the creator platform where you can now be able to buy inventory on the back end, be able to have a swanky look, if you will, you know, a little souped up uh, look on, on the store. That is, that's something that's also translatable to the African continent. We've seen companies um, look at that. One of the companies that we have in our other cohort is Soko Watch mm-hmm. that looks at similar such uh, use cases in, in the African economy. Uh, another area that we are seeing uh, really penetrate these two markets is the fintech world, right? Like companies that are looking at being able to provide uh, SME loan financing, you know, within these emerging markets are starting to become quite a strong use case. Uh, one company that is within our network is Lydia, uh, that uh, that is looking at being able to, you know, get access to loans easier and in shorter timeframes, almost as less as 40 to 72 hours. Uh, which is crazy if if you think of Absolutely. the bureaucracy and the infrastructure and you know structural inequities that you see when any of these small SMB owners are trying to access loans, uh, getting constantly turned down by you know banks. Right. So I feel like where we are with the emerging markets is there there is a lot of opportunities to be able to build companies and to be able to address such problems and but and we are still in the nascent stages. We are still in the early, early, early days. What does it look like from a, a business model when you're dealing with such small businesses? Are they still paying like a, you know, for lack of a better parallel, like, you know, a Shopify fee, right? A monthly fee to use the platform or is the platform free? And then they work sort of like marketplace off of fees or, or something when, when a sale goes through, they just get a small percentage of that fee. Like, how do they, how do they, how do you onboard, you know, such small businesses at the lower end of the economic scale? I mean, it's a combination of what we have seen. We've seen innovative financing methods, like the pay-as-you-go right. uh, use cases in in certain angles, and then we've seen some that have this very nominal fee um, that right. you know to avail themselves of these kind of resources. To me, it's that's the you know like and and that's the the pricing policy if you will is always the tricky part of these kind of uh you know of these of the companies within this ecosystem yeah because you know and and it's tie-ups with let's say telecom operators Mm -hmm. that we've seen them being able to impact you know embark on on market expansion we've seen several other uh, unique ways if you will but that is always the the pink elephant in the room conversation. Yeah. Like, how do we make sure that we are actually um, we are able to reach the, the the consumer base that's extremely fragmented? 
but in dire need of such uh, products. I want to go back real quick to the collective that you spoke of. Are these the type of companies that the collective can invest in or is that different? Okay. Yeah, no, it is exactly right. So for us, the eligibility, so we, we our deal flow comes from our unreasonable fellowship of, of uh, and, 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 yep. and if I have to quantify that fellowship, we have over 250 companies in, in globally, and we have uh, more than, uh, you know, in, in a healthy mix of uh, green economy and future of work. So the idea here is, as in when a company looks at signaling that they're looking for capital, my team and I focus on helping them bridge connections with institutional investors. And once there is a VC that is leading a particular round, we will then evaluate the deal even further and explore that with our collective members. So our collective members can access a global deal flow and co-invest alongside top institutional groups in companies that are scaling rapidly and impacting, uh, you know, lives uh, across the uh, social ecosystem. It's very powerful. It's, I think it's a great step. And I wanted to get your thoughts on even taking it a step further, right? Because there's always this tricky word in accredited, right? Mm -hmm. And that's actually changing. The, The SEC is actually starting to make some rule adjustments around what an accredited investor is. Um, mm-hmm. To me, uh, equity crowdfunding has has sort of come along and to me really just been such a game changer because it allows non-accredited investors, right? Literally yeah. anyone to invest in a company that they believe in. I'm thinking that has it ever been tossed around that unreasonable create some type of equity crowdfunding platform where it allows more than just just like accredited investors can invest, co-invest alongside institutional, can we also get unaccredited investors to be able to invest alongside those accredited investors yeah. and in institutional investors? I think that is where the potential is unlocked for some incredible, incredible change on a bunch of different levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, is, it is something that we are examining and, and looking at as, as part of our roadmap grant. Uh, but let me take a step back, if you wouldn't mind um, sure. sharing why we even think about, you know, I, I mean, one thing about our collect, collective composition is that we are hyper-focused on it being more than 50% of uh, diverse people of color, women, and members from what we would consider to be underrepresented categories. Um, So accredited, yes, it has its floor around (laughs) accreditation requirements. But I think think globally, the word accredited investor can come, can have different meanings. You know, what it means in India is different than US. And thank God, US SEC has finally started to see the light. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be income requirements. But even if we talk about accredited investors grants, the diversity numbers seem like they're straight out of the 12th century. Oh, I, I can't. Uh, you know, imagine. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the problem that we are facing at this point is 98% or actually 99% of firms, you know, according to a particular research, it's Knight Foundation, 99% of $69 trillion managed by the US asset management industry is owned by white men. And that dictates where the capital is flowing. Mm -hmm. Right now, we are seeing quite a lot of women and and people of color come into significant amounts of wealth and attain 
you know, positions where they are coming into meeting the accreditation requirements. As and when we are thinking about unraveling this wealth gap, mm-hmm. we are not necessarily giving them access to investing opportunities. So there in itself lies a massive pain point where we could be playing a pretty pivotal role in, in giving, getting them uh, access to, to venture invest, growth stage venture investing and having them being able to choose which companies they'd like to back and which companies uh, and in what amounts uh, and having a say on that table. To me, that, that, in, that problem in itself is such a massive pain point that we are hyper-focused on it um, given, given we are seeing tailwinds in, in people you know, reaching the kind of wealth that, that would be required to, to join uh, you know, the investment community. And as we do that, we are, all, you know, we are looking at what does it mean beyond this accredited investor definition? Mm-hmm. Um, and we are in active conversations with legal counsels on seeing how can we interpret the new definitions that are going to come into effect? You know, right. How can we think about what does it mean to be financially sophisticated and be able to educate prospective members uh, who are looking to join us and, and explore that avenues with them? You know, there is a place for equity crowdfunding, and I know uh, we want to even look into how can we tap that. But front and center is, is this notion as why is the investment community so white? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a it's a tremendous point. And is the accredited investor law in the United States, is that an anomaly or is that the same in, in India, in Europe, in South America? Are the same laws in place in other parts of the world or is that for some reason an American thing? No, it is. I mean, it's comparable, but not as strict as how U.S. views it. Uh, So U.S. SEC accreditation is built on, and I may be misquoting the year, but it could be 1934 or 1940. It's back then. It is back then. Yes. Yeah. Well, before both of us were alive here. Um, and in, in hyper focus on this idea that if you have reached a certain amount of income requirements, you must be sophisticated in your investing prowess. That the income requirements are indeed something that we see slightly common across other countries, but not as stringent as we would see in, in, its, in, it, in the levels, right? 200,000 and above or a million and, you know. So we, we see quite a, quite a range. Asia tends to be a lot more relaxed. Uh, Europe tends to be more uh, stricter, uh, so which which you know which allows for certain demographics to be able to take advantage and be join collective, and for the others to really navigate it, uh, and for which we are thinking about like what if, what are the avenues on the non-accredited front? It's interesting time because I think you are seeing a modernization of just with the SEC and just with all these. Rules. I think the, the Reg CF rule just went from 1 million to 5 million. So now companies can go on equity crowdfunding platforms and raise 5 million a year. So within, yeah. within just maybe less than 24 months, you've seen it go from a you know, million dollars to 5 million. So that's quite a difference, right? That's, that's a big It deal. is. So it that's is. really, really, really great, I think. And, and you know what? Even funds that are being raised now mm, can be yes. can avail themselves on equity crowdfunding. I think yep. a remarkable example is Arlen's yep. fund uh, yep. that you know that 
got uh, funding within within hours, if you yeah. will, uh, and and something unheard of because of the the um, diversity you know representation when you go around fundraising. So yeah. I I truly believe we have that potential, uh, possibly possibility and pathway, and and we are looking at it pretty actively. How I want to go back to women for a second because women have played a huge role in my life. Uh, you know, raised me have, have been in my life for uh, forever. You know, I've raised by strong women, and I have a a wife who is very very strong woman herself. And it's they've always been a really impactful in my life, and I, I never understood why it was <laughs> such a weird dynamic between female founders getting funds right or even less being fund managers, right? And, and obviously so on up the financial spectrum because, you know, women are really, really good at finance. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> so I, I want to get, and I think there is, there is a bit of a revolution in America, but from a, a global point of view, do you see that same sort of revolution, you know, across the world where women are sort of getting into the upper echelons of, of finance and finally, you know, taking leadership roles, whether it's funds or just getting funded, right? There's such a mm -hmm. step there that needs to still be taken at a at a mass at a mass scale. But what do you see from from women across the world within venture? I I relate to your statement, Grant. I've, I have very strong, opinionated, and remarkably intelligent women, um, you know, that have been my role models and have surrounded me with the right motivation. So it, whoever, you know, my little career journey or path has been, has, has really been uh, deeply impacted by the women uh, I'm surrounded with. Uh, what we've noticed is that there is movement across positions and, 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 and opportunities for women in the workplace. In 2015, there was a McKinsey study that happened where about 29% of companies in the C-suite had women, mm -hmm. and, and now it's risen up to 44%, uh, which is fantastic. On the venture capital side, the numbers don't look so rosy. Uh, last year, in fact, in 2019, VC funding to female founders was just around 2.9%. Uh, this is according to one of the resources I, I might be missing right now. Uh, but last year, it dropped even more because of COVID to 2.5%. Sure. And that is because of who's on the other side of the table. Mm -hmm. So yes, women are, you know, are, I mean, their studies in and out of, you know, having the performance, you know, how performance can be, you know, equal, if not, or, and better at times if you have, you know, both on around men and women, uh, and women in particular. But unfortunately, it is who holds capital. Mm -hmm. And then going back to that particular conversation where we've just shared, you know, we talk about 98.7% of wealth, you know, sorry, of money managers being yeah. white. Think about it even in the VC fund space. Yeah. Where does that leave a voice for women uh, to, to come into positions of fund manager? And if you see, like within collective, like you know, just to give you an idea of, you know, yes, it's a small group of 80 members, but the mere fact that we are more than 60% diverse really flipped the ratios right off the gate as we started investing. Mm. So of the five investments we made, four are women, and one is, uh, you know, three are uh, three are women, 
fourth is actually a person, you know, a male, um, uh, you know, a man of color, and and that really shows the behavioral angle, right? Like who holds sure. likeness? Likeness sees likeness. If you don't, uh, if you don't necessarily solve for the capital partner ecosystem to be more diverse, how can you see women? being in positions of, of being a founder or how can you how can we explore ways to unravel wealth gap for women remains to be a long journey and this is this is not just in the US it's it's global the look i'm sure there's a, a plethora of of problems and issues of of why those numbers kind of are the way they are to change it is it just obviously it's getting more women i think just in the industry i guess to start would be like an easy way right so is it is it like a, a, a university problem, right? Like, is it something as basic yeah. as just getting more women into the financial sector, wherever, whatever part of that sector is? I would argue the other way around. Sweet. I would say, um, in, you know, why should it be only finance, right? Mm, um, yeah, for sure. You know, like Good to me, I, I find that, um, so to, to, I had a completely different assumption of why this problem exists. And, and if you have to take a step back and explore, network is the underpinning of financial markets, mm. where syndication is strongly preferred than being a sole participant in any transaction. So people love to bring in other people to get into investments than just doing it themselves. So VC community is no different, right? Like the venture mm. capital yep. world is built yep. over a web of networks um, to leverage collective intelligence and the value creation of the community. Um, and that's how the better net network VC firms experience significantly better fund performance numbers as measured by, you know, if you think about it, the investments that have successfully exited through an IPO or sale, uh, they are more likely to survive that subsequent financing and eventually exit because they're all part of this really tight community. So if you think about what does that mean on a, on a case by case basis, if someone is leading a particular round who's a VC fund, he is more likely to call up his friends. Who are his friends? Yep. They turn to be similar people yep. of the same community. It's non-diverse money managers. So it is important to break that network and insert more women on that table. And I feel like the, the pipeline of women not being from finance is just a conversation that we need to start really examining more closely. How difficult is it to pick up this skill set? Can women be engaging themselves as active angel investors, build a portfolio of ventures, and learn by doing, by deploying capital in companies that they really like, and build a thesis around it? Can we, you know, and, and, allow their operator knowledge, allow the perspectives and experiences that they've built through their professional uh, career to play that, that uh, you know, that edge in, in their investment philosophy. To me, I want to be able to see a woman who has extensive operator experience in, let's say, you know, the chemical industry, you yep. know, the chemical sector, yep. be able to say, I am a better investor because of my knowledge in this space. And now I'm deploying my knowledge along with my you know, capital to in, in companies that I believe uh, are disrupting this particular sector because I bring the industry experience. And I want to say the same thing from somebody who's coming in from the education sector, yep. looking at working on. So to me, it's about um, ensuring that we have diverse voices in that net, tightly webbed network. And in order for that to happen, 
we need more women to feel confident in flexing their uh, capital deployment skills. And for that to happen, I feel the Angel Networks provides a fertile ground for women to be able to learn and, and for them to exercise that muscle, no matter where they come from, uh, no matter if they are, you know, and, and uh, but it is important that girls uh, from a young age know the, the concept of investing Yep. and are are intrigued by it are and are and and it's something that i urge you know whenever i think of whenever i i speak to you know female professionals who are just entering the market and entering the industry is no matter what you do in your career learn that you learn the art of investing mm. and and that will take you places uh and and invest with your perspectives and your experiences because that is what who that makes you who you are uh, and and not be a crowd, you know, not be a a a face in in a crowd. Wow, um, you hit on a bunch of stuff that I, I want to hit on, but I I, I want to be respectful of your time, so I'll end on a little bit about the future. And I think we're both pretty optimistic on what sort of venture can do to solve problems, but I think obviously we still need to see it mature and, and right and see it in action. And you sort mm -hmm. of talked about unicorns before uh, when we first started you mentioned the word where do you think that's going to come from do you think it's energy uh do you think it's agriculture like where do you see sort of the first sort of unicorn coming from the the in, impact spaces is a weird word right because you could argue like tesla mm. is kind of that right i mean it's it, in a way um but I, I guess from an impact investing point of view and some of the companies we talked about is it fintech? Like, what are some of the, what do you think could be possible unicorns within impact investing? Because I think at the end of the yeah. day, that kind of gets what gets people fired up, right? Both from the yeah. founder side and from an investor side. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, to me, there are a few sectors. Um, one is, uh, and, and firstly, I think each one has its ebbs and flows. Uh, mm -hmm. Each, each, sector has its moment, its shining moment, and then uh, flows in, into, into the next wave, if you will. Um, so it is what I'm seeing now um, is, is more what I'm, I'm sharing my insights on. So we are seeing, you know, tailwinds for food technology companies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, alternative proteins is where we are noticing how there is chances or higher chances of unicorns coming from there. Mobility and transportation, as you rightly mentioned, the Teslas of the world, and it's just the electric vehicle market. You know, sure. we are our, our future is going to be shaped by by how we travel, uh, how how it's going to you know how electric vehicle market will change how we travel, how we eat. Uh, the food market, you know, food technology mm -hmm. companies mm -hmm. are going to play a pretty pivotal role in that. And lastly, is how we bank uh, the fintech. Yep. Uh, you know, is how I see places where there's unbanked segments that are slowly getting into the, uh, in, in are, are being now tapped into where we see a massive opportunity. So these are the three places or three sectors I feel will, will be pretty, will have quite favorable tailwinds over the next few years. I want to add one more because I'm a bad host for not mentioning it earlier is yeah. the healthcare space. Of course. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Yes. I, I mean, we kind of see it, we, we see it in, in sort of America and Europe sort of telemedicine, right? But yeah. I'm imagining if 
the rural areas of Africa and India and South America, you know, the, the idea that you could have sort of telemedicine delivered to that population at scale, I mean, that is a pretty big company that, that, that would occur from that, <laughs> to deliver that absolutely, properly. Absolutely, absolutely. Well. Thank you for sharing that. You're 100% right. Well, I appreciate you so much for taking the time. Uh, I always appreciate people taking time out of the day to do this. Best of luck the next year, but obviously best of luck the next five to 10 years, because I think that is when, you know, we're really going to see what happens from, from an investment point of view, from an impact point of view, you know, just from the sector maturing, getting real data back from, you know, impact data and also monetary data, right? And return data, yeah. all these different things. So uh, best of luck in the next decade, I'd say. Thank you, Grant. It's been a privilege to be chatting with you. And, and yeah, I agree with you. We're super excited for what's to come.